The nation's organ donation system has taken sharp criticism from Congress. What does the situation look like here at home? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, June 8th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we gather people impacted by organ donation in South Dakota. We also step into a few of Shakespeare's most powerful characters ahead of the South Dakota Shakespeare Festival in Vermilion. Kevin Wooster looks at the politics of having treated wastewater flowing through your backyard. Plus, we meet the man who wants to make running accessible for everyone, even the slowest and biggest among us. That's coming later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. A South Dakota State University professor has returned from a trip to Greenland with about a thousand pounds of souvenirs. That's a thousand pounds of ice and snow samples. Juhan Cole Dye is a professor at SDSU's Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. He has been analyzing ice cores for the past two decades. What scientific secrets are locked away in these cores? Dr. Cole Dye joins me from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at South Dakota State University to explain. Professor, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Lori. Um, I'm glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about your partnership with the National Science Foundation and how that grant is helping fund this research. Let's start there. Well, the National Science Foundation, or NSF, supports um, scientific research, especially for uh, basic research, just to understand our world and our universe. And uh, especially the Science Foundation supports uh, work related to the polar regions of the Earth. So uh, if you work at either end of the <laughs> Earth, uh, and, and you can get support from the Science Foundation. And uh, I've been um, using that support from the Science Foundation to do ice core research for, um, well, for the 23 years that I've been uh, at uh, South Dakota State University. Yeah, you've been to Greenland before. And now yes. you've just come back again. How different were those two trips 16 years ago and the one that you just returned from? Well, um, <laughs> I left South Dakota for Greenland exactly a month ago, May 8th. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this time uh, we um, spent a little bit less time uh, on the ice sheet. Um, Greenland is uh, covered by a huge sheet of ice. Uh, 16 years ago, I went there with a couple of graduate students uh, at the SDSU. We worked there for about a month, maybe five weeks. Uh, this time, we were on the ice for only about uh, nine days in the middle of May. All right. Now, what are you looking for as you bring an ice core out of Greenland and you bring it back to South Dakota? The evaluation happens when you get home. Tell us a little bit about the process of the science, please. Well, in a field, we use equipment to collect a large amount of uh, ice and snow samples, and they're quite heavy, literally <laughs> tons of ice. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, we bring the ice to our laboratory uh, here in Brookings, uh, where we perform uh, all kinds of measurements. And I'm a chemist, so I'm interested in chemical measurements of what chemicals we can find natural chemicals we find in the snow and ice. And those snow ice samples go back uh, easily decades, hundreds of years, or in some cases, thousands of years. Hmm. 
and you can see or help um, figure out patterns of, of natural climate change and human-caused climate change. Tell us a little bit about some of the results of your study so far. Yes, uh, the chemical and the other information we get from the snow and ice samples actually do tell us about the environment at the time of the snowfall. So uh, the last project uh, that we did in Greenland 16 years ago, we got an ice samples going back 800 years and we uh, analyzed those samples and, 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 and studied the results and we found out that things were beginning to change at the end of the last century. Um, so, um, but because our samples covered only the first few years of, of uh, uh, the 2000s, so we're, this time we're really interested in how things uh, have been in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So this is why we went back to Greenland to, uh, again, collect the samples to cover the last 20 to 30 years, and then we hope to see what things have been so that the new trends are since the beginning of this uh, century. Yeah. And how long does that science take? How long before you start getting results and able to publish them? Uh, we'll, we'll probably take a month, maybe a, a couple years to uh, go through the ice samples. We do um, all kinds of measurements, uh, chemical analysis of uh, ice samples, a large number of samples. Yeah. Um, I see in your information here that a C-130 transported you to the research site. Um, how long did that take? <laughs> <laughs> These are not fast uh, aircraft. <laughs> no, and but relatively speaking, it was comfortable. The, those uh, uh, cargo planes don't have uh, passenger seats, so yeah. you sit essentially on these uh, webbing type of uh, of. Uh, I wouldn't even call them cheers. Yep. But they're comfortable enough that you can get there. But you have to wear all of your winter clothing on the <laughs> flights because <laughs> uh, it gets cold. I think you're generous to call that comfortable, but all in the name of science. Dr. Juhan Koldai is a professor at SDSU's Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Thank you so much for talking about your research. Glad you're back on the ground here in South Dakota. Could I just say something real quick? Sure. Um, to the listeners, um, uh, the South Dakota Public uh, Broadcasting is a great sort of resource, and uh, I've been a supporter of uh, South Dakota Public uh, Broadcasting ever since I came to South Dakota 23 years ago. So please support um, this uh, uh, great resource. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am your host, Lori Walsh. Well, you have likely read a few of William Shakespeare's works in your high school or college English classes, but have you read all 37 plays? Do you want to? Do you have time for that? Well, lucky for us, the 2023 South Dakota Shakespeare Festival is bringing us highlights of the canon. This year, they have handpicked the best scenes from the best plays, and two of their actors are here to tell us all about it. Lacey Day and Krista Cornell will each step into the shoes of multiple Shakespearean women for the performances. They join me from SDPB's studios on the University of South Dakota campus. Lacey Day, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Krista Corna, thanks for being here as well. 
Hi, excited to be here. Krista, I'm going to start with you and have uh, asked Lacey to get a little closer to her microphone there as they make some adjustments. But Krista, tell us a little bit about the Shakespeare Festival. For people who have never been there before, what are they going to see? Sure. So it's an exciting week-long event, truly. We've got events throughout the entire week. Um, we have uh, a bark with the bard coming up, uh, a fun dog walk with many a Shakespearean quote and photo op opportunity. We're doing some Shakespeare trivia. We've got um, an incredible opportunity to see a sonnet, the sonnet man on, uh, I believe, Thursday night, yeah. uh, Devon. He... Um, he adapts, um, I would say adapts is the right word, uh, some of Shakespeare's most wonderful pieces and modernizes them in a way that's super interesting, really exciting. And then, of course, the festival um, culminates in our production, uh, which we're so excited about as we celebrate all of the productions that the SDSF has produced in the last 13 years. Yeah. Lacey, why did you want to be part of this as an actor? I'm going to stop you right there because we still don't quite have Lacey close enough to the mic. Um, can you scoot over next to Krista by any chance? Let's just have some fun there in the Vermilion Studios. and <laughs> <laughs> You will improvise and adapt and overcome, I suspect, as the actors that you are. <laughs> Give it a yes. try. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Okay. So um, as an actor, I actually haven't uh, gotten the opportunity to be in a whole lot of Shakespeare shows. So yeah. <laughs> to be offered the opportunity um, to explore it a little further was very, very exciting for me. All right. Kristen, what drew you to it? You've got a little experience there, too. Yeah, so I went to school at USD and have been uh, very familiar with the festival since uh, 2017, oh, sorry, 2013 when I started school here. Mm -hmm. um, and the opportunity to come back to Vermilion, oh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. So uh, that was definitely very exciting. But as well as to work with Rebecca Bailey, the new acting artistic director, she has a phenomenal vision and a beautiful sense of community that uh, is wonderful to be a part of. Lacey, tell me a little bit about some of your characters or scenes. What will you be bringing to the, the, the venue here, the park? I was going to say the stage. I guess it's a stage, <laughs> but to the grass, yeah. Yes, wonderful. So I will be playing uh, Hermia from Midsummer mm -hmm. Night's Dream, uh, Lady Anne from Richard III, uh, Luciana from Comedy of Errors, uh, Viola from Twelfth Night and Rosalind from As You Like It. Are there certain things that you have to do to prepare yourself to embody those characters and the, the wide, uh, you know, variety of emotions that they express? Absolutely, you know, and and um, however, saying that, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into differentiating between all of those people. Yeah. Um, but also finding the humanity. And, you know, the relatability in each one of them is something that we rely on. Yeah. Krista, what's hidden in the text for an actor of Shakespeare that is maybe unique in the theater world? Yeah, so Shakespeare's incredible in that he wrote in what we call iambic pentameter, right? So he um, had this structure to his writing that offers many clues and hidden stage directions for the actors. So basically... If there's a verb, he expects that you fully act out that verb. Um, <laughs> and there are s specifically stressed and unstressed syllables in each phrase that the actor will rely on to 
really show you what he thinks is most important in his text, um, which is just instrumental in uh, how we perform and, and the choices we make. I don't suppose you could give the listeners a short example of what you mean there by the stresses oh, and... sure. Yeah. So um, let's take a, a famous line, um, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. So the most important words you would think in that um, phrase would be, uh, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. So he uh, pairs in couplets. Every um, two syllables technically would be unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. And uh, it just clues your ear in to, to know what what's really going on. And because it can be hard to follow. We all know it's we don't talk like that anymore. So yeah. <laughs> any any help we can get is important. I'm going to talk like that the rest of the day in soon. As you I should. Know that one. <laughs> All right. It is the 2023 South Dakota Shakespeare Festival. It's a celebration of Shakespeare June 11th through the 18th. If you want to, you can find sdshakespearefestival.org. Find all the scheduling. We'll also put a link up on our website. Lacey Day and Krista Corna are uh, both performing on Friday at the Celebration of Shakespeare in the Prentice Park area there. Thank you, Krista, for being here. Thanks, Lacey. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, in the past few months, there's been talk of overhauling the organ transplant system at the national level. But how does that system really work in South Dakota? We've gathered a panel of uh, experts because they are very close to this conversation to explore that question. Susan Moe Larson is Chief Strategy Officer with LifeSource. LifeSource is the organ procurement organization for the Upper Midwest, and she's with me on the phone. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tim Bjork is an organ recipient, and he received a life-saving heart transplant in 2006. He is joining us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City, and a note to listeners, Mr. Bjork is a financial supporter of SDPB. Tim, welcome. Thank you for being here. Lori, thanks for having us. And Josh Wheeland is the son of an organ donor recipient, of an organ donor. Thank you. His mother, Susie, died. I'm already getting choked up, Josh. What are we going to do? His mother, Susie, died in 2019, but her organ donation saved seven lives. And he is with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Thank you. Good afternoon, Lori. Thanks for having me. Susan, I want to talk um, first with you to get some of the the background business out of the way PBS Newswatch and On Point on NPR have talked about these Senate hearings where the system, the administrative system, about how organ donation is managed in the U.S. is in need of reform, but that doesn't tell the whole story. So start there and help us understand what's happening now on the national level that does or does not impact what's happening in South Dakota and the Minnesota, North Dakota region. Yep, thank you very much. And maybe I should start a little bit with who LifeSource is and what does happen in South Dakota with donations. So first of all, we are the organization that um, you would be familiar with if you have donor on your license. Yeah. So we're the ones who manage the organ donation process. Uh, we're really the vital bridge between hospitals, donor families, and those who are waiting for transplant. 
So our team works 24-7 to save lives. And we navigate, you know, the unique challenges posed by weather and uh, rural hospital locations. We work with all of the hospitals throughout their region uh, to make sure donation and transplantation happens. We're really proud that locally, 2022 was a record year for LifeSource. We uh, worked with more organ donors, like Josh's generous family, and more organs transplanted than any other year. In fact, in 2022, we saw a 30% increase in organs transplanted in our region over 2021. So that's a little bit of the land. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say directly to whether or not you think there should be reform? Have you had trouble um, administratively working with the national organization? Um, no, I wouldn't say that we have had trouble. We have worked with CMS. CMS is the organization that provides oversight for organ donation, okay. and we've worked with them for 34 years since uh, LifeSource was formed in 1989. Yeah. Josh? What is happening on the net? No, go, go ahead, Susan. Finish <laughs> that thought. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, on the national level, the CMS, which is the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, they change their metrics of how they measure uh, donation and transplantation. And so they're looking at how many donors do we have, how many organs are transplanted from their donors. Uh, and then from there, they are actually um, ranking the organ procurement organizations. They're 56 in the country and looking at performance from the top performers to those who are really at the bottom in terms of performance. And they're uh, put rules in place that in 2026, when this takes effect, those who are in the bottom performing, if you will, would be automatically decertified. Okay. So in other words, as written, these new rules would say that um, anywhere between 50 to 75% of organ procurement organizations in the country could be decertified. So oh. we have concerns about that competitive process and the implications of that um, when that happens. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but um, all this, for, I think, for listeners is also pretty technical and yes. nice, Josh, technical, but for you, it's very, it's very personal. Did your mother tell you before her death that she wanted to be an organ donor? Had you guys had conversations about this? Yeah. So my mom's uh, brother, Paul, was a double recipient back in the 90s, and he was a pancreas and kidney uh, organ recipient, which uh, prolonged his life uh, for uh, quite a bit longer. And so that was the uh, driving force for my mom uh, in wanting to be an organ donor. And so uh, the day that uh, she passed away, which is coming up on four years, um, as we had heard the news of uh, you know, nothing that could be done to, to save her, uh, I, I chuckle now, but I remember standing there with my wife, Corey, and my dad, uh, and he's saying, uh, you know, your mom wanted to be an organ donor. And, and uh, for that, uh, for us, uh, having just uh, received you know, tragic news. Uh, we were we were about to start a new journey uh, to carry on my mom's legacy, and and that's why I believe organ donation is uh, is so impactful because it it uh, it transforms grief to a to a different level uh, yeah. and continues yet today. Yeah, finding a deep purpose that I Correct. mean, there's so many other legacies that your mom has yeah. in your life, and then this Tim Bjork. Tell us a little bit about how this has impacted um, your life. Well, thanks, Lori. But first of all, Josh, I just want to say thank you for, for what your mother has done and what your family has done. Because when I start telling my story, it's it's usually pretty short. Um, mm -hmm. Without donors, without donor families, um, I guess I'm not around anymore. So it's a 
it's a it's a it's a short story, but it goes back fifty some years to the jungles of Vietnam. If you want to start back there, um, you know, one of the things that I think hasn't been talked about in a lot of these issues is how complicated donation yeah. can become. And I worked with Susan Malarson and Susan Gunderson for almost twelve year, twelve years at Life Source, talking about all of the things that need to happen for transplantation to happen. For me, it happened in 2006, and since that time, I've, I've got to see my four grandsons uh, graduate from high school and college. I've got to see a couple of them married and a, a couple of great-grandkids, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But going back to 2006 and getting on the donor list, going through the hospital, going through the transportation complications that are involved in all of this, it's it's just incredible, and I think Susan and I have talked about it, how many people are involved for one person to get transplanted. So, I, you know, I, like I said, I worked with LifeSource for 12 years, and in all those years, I have never worked with a more caring bunch of people, and it's bringing tears to my eyes just to think about it, a more caring bunch of people in my whole life that focused on saving lives. So, Josh, thank you. Thank you to you and your family. I don't know my donor, but I know a, a whole lot of other donor families, and that makes, that makes me so happy to be part of that family that I, it's hard to express. Susan, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Thank you for that, Tim. And Josh and I are literally like not looking at each other in the studio so we don't fall apart. So we said every time it gets intense, we're going to have Susan come give us some data. Um, <laughs> tell us, <laughs> tell, tell us because, and I guess what I'm also wondering, Susan, is that when you hear Senate hearings or you hear people who are waiting for an organ, like, holy cow, this is emotional stuff. But speak to Tim's point about how complicated it is to just get a donor, because that donor is not going to be, you know, hey, the donors in Sioux Falls and the recipients in Sioux Falls, although I'm sure that could happen. That's not standard, right? Like, how complicated is it to get an organ to its recipient in time? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Thanks. I, I also want to just um, thank Tim and Josh for sharing your just incredible stories. You know, donation is so rare. Um, and for families like Joshua to really uh, extend that altruistic gift is so, so important. You know, organ donation is a very unique area of medicine because you can't simply schedule transplant. It requires the generosity of others. So, of course, every day we're asking people to consider leaving a legacy for yourself and for your family. We're actually very fortunate in South Dakota. 61% of South Dakotans are registered at the DMV. Um, that might sound low. Certainly, we need to absolutely increase that, um, but we know it's high compared to other states. Interestingly, men register at a rate 10% lower than women, so we're really, really working on our outreach and education to ensure that more people say yes to donation. Like I said, it's very, very rare. Um, only 1% of people who die actually have the opportunity to be a donor, so we really want to make sure that everybody thinks about that. Um, and takes the time to talk to their family and share their wishes because we really want more people like Tim to have more years in life. Yeah, Tim, what kind of conversations have you had with your family about the the not only the gratitude but um, 
the responsibility and the you know things can happen to you too that, I mean you feel like you're you have to do you have to take care of yourself for more than one person now right like talk well, about that and I think one of the things that needs to be stressed is a big shout out to caregivers out there and Josh I'm sure you're familiar with all the the caregiving responsibilities that go along with not only for the transplant recipients but also for the the donor families and the grief and everything else that happens with this process it's it's just i i don't know how to express it all the people that have to be part of this program to make it happen and like like susan said only 1% of the people that pass away can be donors so there just aren't very many donors out there when you get down to it so we need to get we need to focus on uh, getting everybody to sign up as many people as possible certainly and there's another thing that that Susan and I have talked about for a long time is there are a lot of myths out there on donation and transportation trans transportation transplantation yeah. the the myths of for instance I know one of them that's up there is if it looks like you're going to pass away they're not going to try and help you well that's not true that's not what the medical field does there's just all kinds of things out there that we need to alert people to and make them aware of in this whole process. Yeah. Keep in mind if you saw something, you know, dramatized in a TV show um, where the doctors hesitate. I, I don't over watch the, those yeah. anymore, Lori. <laughs> like, that's not how it really works. Uh, might be interesting for the plot point. Uh, but no, that's not how it works. They will continue to save your life. Um, Josh, what, uh, what other myths have you come across that you'd like to dispel? Well, my, my mom was 66 when she passed away. Uh, she had smoked when I was uh, younger, and so I thought, you know, maybe her age and her lungs uh, would, and, and she had quit a long time ago as well, but uh, that, that morning of uh, organ procurement to hear that it was one of the best set of lungs that they had seen uh, was, was uh, overwhelming for us. And then to hear that it was going to another uh, similar-aged uh, woman uh, uh, was just incredible. And so just for my own, uh, uh, you know, myths, uh, of, of age and maybe, you know, pre-existing uh, items in, in someone's life, th those were not necessarily factors in, uh, in, in our case. Yeah. Well, was there a, um, was there, are there good ways to handle that moment of saying goodbye? Um, because there's a lot happening when someone dies, uh, uh, you know, even if it's unexpected death. And then this is also an additional thing that is, you, you know, you have to make decisions. People are talking to you. They're telling you what's going on. There's a lot, you know, information overload. Is there something if you went back, you'd say, oh, that was very useful, or I wish I had known this before? So uh, my wife's in, in healthcare. My, my dad was in healthcare. I was kind of in healthcare as a pilot. So I had this very finite uh, understanding of what would occur, and I had no idea. And to Tim's point, there is a lot that occurs uh, for the donor family. So it's not just uh, the sudden loss of a family member, but then there's time after that, time to set up the recipient side. Yeah. And and so that adds a different element to grief, uh, which is why I think it's really important for families, uh, not only to for for drivers to check yes but to, on your driver's license, but to have that conversation uh, and just to be prepared. Uh, and as I look back on it, uh, obviously a thousand percent thankful that we were able to, to carry that out for uh, my mom and the recipients, but uh, it just takes time. And uh, for our family, it was uh, all about faith, uh, faith that my mom had instilled in us, and uh, faith got us through those those difficult days and knowing that 
um, that my mom would would uh, carry out her faith by by ultimately giving that final gift and helping others, uh, such as Tim and, and others uh, across the country, have have a second chance. Yeah, Susan, walk us through how to prepare if you are. Having that conversation with your family, you tell your kids, I checked the box, This is these are my wishes. What do you tell your kids next about what's going to happen and how they can best be prepared mm-hmm. for it? Yeah, well, thank you. You're right. It's so important that people tell their family that this is what I want so that they are aware um, should the situation arise. You know, when somebody does have the potential to be a donor, we're called And so our team, we have a team of first responders who come to the hospital and stay with the family and walk them through the process and provide that support to the family. And so that's what I I would tell them when you say, this is something I really want. Donation is important to me. And there are a team of professionals who who will be there to walk you through this process, make sure that that decision is honored. I would also share that we have a team here that continues to provide ongoing support to families um, to really honor and recognize the legacy that their loved one gave. And, and there are opportunities to come together to to say their name and talk about the importance of the gift that they shared. Yeah. Tim Bjork, I'm going to give you maybe the last word here. Um, what do you want to leave people with about how important this is? And because one of the things that strikes me is that Josh, in a lot of ways, is as a, a family that he never knew he had in other you know, people who are, you know, relate, whose, whose loved ones have done organ donation. Um, I'm not implying that he's family members with the people who have received these organs, but just all of a sudden you're part of this big club of, of like-minded individuals. Um, what do you want to leave us with, Tim? You know, I can, I can talk about one thing, and I, I, I want to use the word gratitude, and I want to use the word blessed uh, to explain how I feel. Many transplant recipients have said the same thing to me when you come out of the hospital or you come out of the operating room you know there's a gratitude there but there's also I don't know how to say this but there's a guilt someone has died for you to live Mm -hmm. and that's I heard someone say the other day and I'm not not necessarily buying into this but that can be a burden sometime and the gratitude that I feel to the families, to the donor, is just unimaginable. I, I can't, I can't get my arms around it, and and I can't say thank you enough to Josh and all the other families that are out there about how grateful I am and how blessed I am every day. Yes. Well, Tim Bjork is an organ recipient. Susan Mao Larson is chief strategy officer with LifeSource, and Josh Wheeland is the son of an organ donor. His mother's name is Susie. What else do you want to tell me about Susie that's not related to her death, but that's related to her life? Oh, she was just uh, such a, a vibrant uh, mom, well, wife, uh, Nana to our, our, our two girls. And so, uh, you know, she's deeply missed yet today. Uh, however, I would uh, echo a little bit of what Tim is saying. And, and there's also gratitude uh, from a, a, a donor family knowing that uh, there are people alive today uh, because of, of my mom's uh, wish. And so I'm thankful for Organizations like LifeSource that and, and healthcare institutions like Sanford and Avera that help carry these out daily. All right. Good job, Susie. You got a good kid there. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Let's take a moment now to honor an artistic and educational legacy. Oscar Howe's paintings brought traditional Native American styles to the forefront of the art scene, and they redefined what Native American art could be. Oscar Howe was born in the state, and he taught at the University of South Dakota for more than two decades. Today, his memory lives on in the Oscar Howe Summit Art Institute. Each summer, high school students live on the campus of USD and learn from professional Native artists free of charge. Corey Nedler is chair of the art department at the university. He talks about Oscar Howe and the grant-funded program's impact. A lot of the Native American artistic culture is not, I would say, not well represented in many of our public schools. And so this is an opportunity for students to get that transference of knowledge from one generation to the next. And when we look at the when we look at the Oscar Hassan Art Institute, it was of course started originally by Oscar. One of his proteges then picked up and taught what Oscar had taught them. And then we see from Bobby Penn, some of his students came back and taught at the Oscar Howe. And some of those students have come back and taught at the Oscar Howe. And so we see this continuum of knowledge that's being passed down from one generation to the next through their art. And I think that's the most important aspect of this is that continuum. Tomorrow, we dedicate the hour to Oscar Howe as the Dakota Modern Exhibition comes to the South Dakota Art Museum in Brookings. We'll take a break. Up next, Kevin Wooster looks at the debate over wastewater and French Creek, and we take a run, slowly, really slowly. It's okay. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What does it mean when wastewater treatment comes to your backyard? The city of Custer is improving their wastewater treatment and disposal system, but people who live along French Creek say discharging that treated wastewater into the creek is, among other things, a public nuisance. Kevin Wooster reports on the issue online. You can find it sdpb.org slash wooster. And he's with us now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio with more. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Lori. Hey, before we go to French Creek, can I back up to Spearfish Creek for just a brief minute? Yeah. A uh, couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, Tim Bjork, who was on, oh, your, on yeah. your segment previously, and I had a great day fly fishing on Spearfish Creek. And uh, nice. some of the South Dakota broadcasting folks were there, videotaped it, and and put together a really cool and fun fly fishing, uh, you know, video that was up online. And, and a lot of people that we know really enjoyed it. And it was a wonderful day. And, you know, that day probably wouldn't have happened uh, and without that transplant that Tim received. And uh-huh. so, it, you know, the family obviously is the primary and the, the person itself, obviously. But the, the number of people touched uh, by the those that are uh, blessed with that gift uh, is... Yeah innumerable you know i'm super trying not to cry kevin 
still oh, from okay. that last segment. <laughs> okay. Well, then let's, let's move so on. So I'm to just going to say, that, how, come, help. how come I wasn't <laughs> invited to the fly well, fishing? Well, let me tell you. Okay. The next, the next time Tim and I go out, you okay. will definitely be invited. And then I'll cry there. <laughs> yeah, let's all cry. Let's Why not? All, let's all go fishing and cry. <laughs> Today's show is called Let's All Go Fishing and Cry. And in a few months, we're going to go for a run. So that would be good, too. Yeah. All right. Go. So let's talk about wastewater. Let's talk about the this um, this ongoing. This is not just a not in my backyard conversation. This is deeply personal to the families who are living near French Creek. And um, tell us a little bit about what's been happening and how much it's impacting families. Well, this is a project that's been in the work for a, f- a few years, but uh, you would the, the folks along the creek would tell you that they didn't receive enough notice. And as I say in the blog, they certainly, uh, the people, the city, the state, uh, Department of Ag and Natural Resources, met the legal requirements for notice in the local paper, but papers aren't read quite as much as they used to be, and they don't have the circulation impact that they used to have. And the people there felt like they were sort of blindsided by this. You know, that's a debatable point, obviously, back and forth. And also, they just felt like this new plan to to stop disposing mistreated wastewater you know it's not raw sewage and it's uh, uh, modern treatment uh, processes that get it about as clean as you can get it before it goes into it's got to go somewhere and the city's got to put it somewhere they've been putting it in another uh, stream Flynn Creek that's a smaller stream and certainly not one with the I think the personality and the the reputation and the the visitation that's that French Creek has and probably the value that it has especially to the people that love it in Custer State Park and that live along it and yeah. and the idea of wastewater treated or not going into that creek is just an outrage to to many of those people so one of the quirky things about Custer and there are many quirky, wonderful things about Custer. <laughs> but yes, as the population absolutely. changes, I mean, you go there in the winter. I've been there lots over the winter. It's, it's quiet. It's, you know, there's great food, great restaurants, um, some really good climbing, lots of outdoor activities. And then you go there in the summer, and it is tourist season to the maximum. Yeah. yeah so that changes what you have to have for infrastructure and services. You've got to be ready for all those people to come. You do, and uh, that's not going to change. It's not going to stabilize. I don't think it's going to continue to grow with uh, the visitors and people that would like to live in that area. So obviously they have a capacity issue. They have uh, an older system now that needs parts of it need to be replaced, leaks and and things like that, and nobody wants leaks when Mm -hmm. you're dealing with wastewater. And and, uh, this was the cheapest alternative of those they looked at and the one that would be the the least expensive to build, the least expensive to maintain and operate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're talking about taxpayers' dollars here. So there was an obvious solution to the city council, the city po- folks that that decided that that was the way to go. And when it was permitted by the Department of Ag and Natural Resources, who said, and they had, according to the folks that designed it, they had the Game Fish and Parks folks and a couple of parks and fisheries folks that said, okay, and uh, away they went with this. But then we've got this vote. Yeah. Tell us about the, the vote for people who don't know. The, the community has uh, voted yes. Basically, they have declared the discharging of wastewater into French Creek a public nuisance. So what? What happens next? Wh- well, and, you know, we live in a state where public votes are big. And putting yeah. names on a petition are a big part of the, the government process and our rights as people that live here. And, 
And this is a little different in that it's a county uh, petition effort, but they got the 375, I think, for the number they needed, got that and more, and, and went out and, and gathered those and put it up for a, a countywide vote on Tuesday and won by a couple hundred votes, 800-some, I think, to 600-some, if I remember right, and, mm -hmm. and uh, pretty strong. And now the question is, you've got a disposal process that's been permitted by the state. It's been approved by the city and selected. The pipe has been run to this location, a lot of it. And uh, now what? And as, as one of the organizers of the French Creek group, uh, Neil Schanzenbach says, lawyers get involved at some point, yeah. uh, pretty much. And how does that play out? What, what can happen now? I think that's a question that we're going to have to yeah. wait for an answer. Yeah, and that's probably a very good thing to sort of sort some of these things to, to bring in lawyers and have um, you know some of those conversations. A lot going on, and there's a lot more to read on this, so you can go online at sdpb.org slash Wooster. That's W-O-S-T-E-R. And uh, you're going to take me fishing again. And me and Tim out on the creek. Yeah, I haven't done fly fishing Maybe. yet. We've been on the boat Ma together. And we have to get back with the Maze Boys, too. Remember that? Yes. But I don't know about the waders <laughs> thing because <laughs> you told me one time that, you know, the water gets in the waders, you're going under, and I'm just the kind of girl who's going to get water in the waders. <laughs> you we'll have to pull me out of the belt on okay. you, and you'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Kevin Wooster, yeah. thanks so okay. much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. you to think for a moment about a runner. Picture that runner in your mind, shoes laced tightly, powering through the rain or the heat, triumphantly crossing the finish line or logging the next mile. Did you picture someone lean and fast and gazelle-like? Well, what does it mean if the body type of the person you imagine when you imagine a runner is anything but the same body you see in the mirror every day? Maybe you wouldn't believe that the joys of running are meant for you at all. Well, our next guest is on a mission to invite anyone who wants to run into the slow run club. Maybe you finish last, whatever that means. Yes, he says, running is for you too. Welcome to the club. Martinez Evans is the author of Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for anyone who wants to run. And he's with me on the phone. Martinez, welcome. Thanks for being here. Lori, thank you for having me. And I want to go fly fishing as well. Yes, you are invited. You can come to South Dakota. There's a book festival in the Black Hills. It's coming up in September, and we'll take you fly fishing. There, it's settled. <laughs> now, if people could see you right now, a lot of times when you're on television, you are wearing the Run Club gear, which has a, a, a turtle printed on it. So let's start. <laughs> let's start there with just running isn't always designed. Even finding the right clothes can be hard to find if you don't fit the traditional standard of sleek and lean runner, how hard is it for people to really enter this world in your experience? It is very hard. And finding clothes for people of size is very hard to find, especially in the traditional big box stores, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can go in there and you can see mannequins um, that fit the traditional mold and clothing that fit the traditional mold for most people. However, for a person of size going into those big box stores, there's little, little to if not none uh, clothes there to fit us. 
Yeah. You started out on this journey after talking to a doctor um, who very briefly told you if you didn't lose weight and you were more than 300 pounds at the time, you were going to die, period. And you basically said, not only am I going to you know, be fine, I'm going to run a marathon. And he said, you run a marathon, you're going to die. Tell me a little bit about that interaction and how it fueled you, even though I don't think that it's something we would want doctors to um, emulate by any means. Absolutely. You know, um, I went to this doctor because I was having hip issues. You know, I was working a commission sales job at the time, and I was on my feet 8 to 12 hours a day in hard bottom dress shoes walking on concrete. So I went to this doctor because I developed some hip issues. And he wasn't my PCP. He wasn't a doctor that I've seen regularly. This was a doctor that I've seen for the first time to figure out what was going on with my hip. So as I'm sitting there telling this doctor, about my hip, you know, he, he, he was like, you know, I know why, I know why you're in pain. Okay, what's that? You haven't put a stethoscope on me. You ain't touched me. You haven't done any of this stuff. And that's when he went on to call me fat, told me I need to either lose weight or die. You know, he went on to say, you know, I have a stomach as a pregnant woman. I need mm. to start walking on a treadmill or start walking on the track and so on and so forth. And out of frustration, you know, I was being facetious when I told him that I was going to run a marathon. And he laughed at me and told me, you know, that's the, the dumbest thing he heard in all of his years of practice in medicine. So out of spite and frustration, as I was going home, I bought some running shoes and I started running that day. Yeah. I, I'm so mad at him on your behalf. <laughs> I'm Team Martinez. I'm telling you right now, I'm on this team and that is not okay. One of the things, I'm a slow runner. I Well, and here's here's my story. Um, which I think your book may have changed in my mindset, is I was always slow. Even when I was, I mean, I was never a fast person. They cut the time off at the end of the 5K because they're like, we just all have to go home. And I was like, but I'm still running here. And I paid my fee. And it was just, finally I just stopped. I was like, well, I don't, I don't belong in this world. I don't look like a runner. I get, you know, I get overheated pretty easily. So I have to slow down and, you know, drink lots of water. I'm never going to be fast. And just said goodbye to running. How many people just don't even go because of, I mean, judgment, <laughs> expectation, shame? It's a tough club. It is. You know, your story is a story of many members inside of my run club of, you know, not running races or being afraid to run races because they've heard of horror stories of individuals not finishing the race in time and everybody packed up or, you know, not having water or, you know, getting lost on the course because they took down the signs and they had to fend for themselves. So your story is just like any other story that I've, I've experienced or members who talked about inside of the run club. Yeah. And it's really something that um, I'm here to, you know, put my foot down and, and take a stand to let, you know, race directors know that our money spend just the same as anybody else who's faster than us and they need to be able to support us and give us um, equity uh, or, or the same amount of treatment that they, they treat the faster runners. Yeah. And if not, they shouldn't take our money. Yeah. This is what uh, really also spoke to me about your book, which is, um, you know, this is my own process. This is your own process. You might run for 15 seconds and then walk. In fact, that's a really good place to start is with 15 seconds. Um, don't go too fast. You'll get hurt because you're trying so hard to compare yourself. Comparison is the thief of joy, you say. 
Absolutely. Um, those are things that I find that most new runners have problem with, right? Yeah. Most new runners go out too fast, too soon, and do too much. I call it the terrible twos. <laughs> um, and my thing as a coach is to help people manage their expectations, but also help them manage this journey as they slowly ramp up and get active, but also give time for their bones, ligaments, and joints to get used to this new physical activity. Yeah. And then, yes, comparison is the thief of joy. You know, I'm all about providing um, joy in a sport of running. You know, my thing is this. If you're not a professional athlete and your life does not depend on running super fast and winning a gold medal, none of this stuff matters. Because here's <laughs> why. We are all paying to be a part of a parade. And at the end of this parade, we get a participation medal. Hmm. We all get the same medal. <laughs> we all are in the parade. You know, some people are just in the back of the parade. Some people are in the front of the parade. But guess what? Once we get done with the parade, we all get a participation medal that we paid for. And, and we all get so chocolate why? milk. We all get chocolate milk at the end. Yeah, Martinez, <laughs> Martinez <laughs> Evans, it's a the Slow AF Run Club. It's the ultimate guide for anyone who wants to run. We're out of time. I love you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening. <laughs>